If you would take your Bibles, turn with me please to Ephesians 4. We've been doing some overview material in Ephesians because we're talking about the relationship of the gifts that God has blessed the church with and also the importance of the body and why it is significant in this time and this place in history. We've been making much of the cross of Christ, of His resurrection and His ascension in relation to spiritual forces. And the reason for this is, is because that is the battle. The enemy would have us think a lot of times it's in a different way. If the American church is suffering from anything, especially in the South right now, they think that the battle is political. And it's not. The political is simply a manifestation of what is going on spiritually. And there will be a lot more accomplished through prayer and having our noses in the Word of God so that we could properly discern the times and thinking somehow we punched a ballot card and we've spiritually glorified God in that. Am I saying we shouldn't vote? No, I'm not saying that at all. I think sometimes we substitute what the Bible calls for of His children. And what it really is is seek His face and desire His will. So I want us to see the significance of what's going on here and how God has structured things and how the cross makes it all possible. In Ephesians chapter 4, we're picking up with a theme. And if you remember, we talked about how the first three chapters of Ephesians deals with magnanimous and matchless grace that has been poured out by God to us because of Jesus. That's really what it all, if I had to crudely sum it up in a very um, false patient type of way, because there's so much more that goes on. I mean, even Paul used three chapters to talk about it. We're going to look at some of that today. That's what happens. The turning point comes in chapter 4, verse 1, because now he is calling for us to respond to that grace by having it manifested in our life. What does it look like to have a changed life in light of the grace that's been shown to us? And this is where the rubber meets the road. And so he talks much about bearing with one another, having all humility with one another, seeking to have kindness with one another, tolerating the differences within the body of Christ with one another. And then he moves to a point saying, even though we're all unified, that doesn't mean that we all need to be acting the same way. Thinking the same way? Yes. Having one mind about ourselves so that we are unified in doctrine? Absolutely. How that's displayed? Completely different. You may have more of a serving mentality. I want to get in there and I'm a doer. If you haven't noticed, I'm more of a talker. You notice that. I got done last week and I came down. It remind me of your great-granddaughter's name. Abigail said to me, that was good, preacher. It was real long. And I looked around at Paul and Iris. I said, somebody put her up to that. No, she's just incredibly observant. I promise I will not try to make it like that today. But I want you to get what we're talking about here. Everybody's been given a different gift. And we're actually kind of looking at this from a different perspective. We're not getting into the individual gifts yet. There's actually something that is symbolized as gifts that have been given that is different from what we would consider the gifts of prophecy, wisdom of knowledge, tongues, those types of things. We're going to look at those in time. But there's something different that takes place here. Look with me, if you would, starting at verse 7. But to each one of us, within this unity of the body, each one of us, 
grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we've already looked at this. The gift that Christ gives to the church is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who is the distributor of the gifts as he deems necessary within each local body of Christ. So all believers in Jesus Christ are part of the universal body of Christ. But by large percentage, if you want to talk about the writings of Paul, if you want to talk about even the few things that Jesus had to say about the church and the Gospels, he points to the importance of the local assembly of believers. So I want to say that like out of 120-something mentions of the church, I'm pretty sure it's like 98 times it talks about local body mentality, and a few of those, as far as universal, are questionable. In other words, the emphasis really moves a lot in the New Testament towards the local church. And so, what God's desire is going to do is to assemble a local body that so represents the body of Christ in completeness, because all spiritual gifts are found whole and 100% in the person of Jesus, and we're going to see that. What's interesting about this is with him giving the Spirit... He starts with the idea of if we're doing a brand new thing called the church, and that happens in Acts 2, it never been something before, and what he's going to start out with is he's actually going to bless the church with certain offices that are going to be considered gifts to the church. Now, when we step into that in verse 11, we need to see what happens between 7 and 11, or sorry, 7 and 10, in order to get into 11. Look with me at verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, So we're speaking of his ascension, and Paul is using this from Psalm 68 to apply it here. He led captive a host of captives. Now, don't let me down, church. Who were the captives? No! Oh, my gosh! Wilbur and Schnurdly, don't ever answer anything again. (laughs) Who were the captives? We spent a lot of time on this. Evil spirits! Evil demons! Fallen angels! celestial deities who are not faithful in the responsibilities that God had given them. And so the cross arrests them. This is why he's triumphed over them in him. We just read that for prayer time. Does everybody remember that? Everybody remember the mountain and the maps and Mount Hermon? I want to say something. We got to stay focused. And here it is. And he gave gifts to men. And why is that? Because any time that a warrior or a king would go and conquer a situation, he would lead the enemy away, parade them through the town square, and anything that they had taken from them would turn around and distribute it to the soldiers and to the people of the city as a means of celebrating the victory. So what has happened now are the spiritual forces have been apprehended at the time of the cross. And we are actually awaiting the time when all the enemies will be made his footstool. Are you familiar with that concept? That's why Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, and he is not on the throne of God. He's on the throne, brother. No! Don't listen to that. They mean well in trying to encourage you. What they're saying is, is God's in control, and yes, we understand that. But you will find repeatedly in the New Testament, the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the Father. It's a place of privilege and position that's been given to Jesus because of the magnitude of his work, 
what is able to now be effectively done through that magnitude of work, and he is waiting to ascend the throne, and that's what Revelation 19 in the millennial reign of Christ is all about. It's about the time when the Father will get up and invite the Son to sit on the throne and to rule perfectly at that time over the earth. It's going to be a grand time. And what's amazing is, is after that time is over, the Son just gives it back to the Father. They usher in the eternal state, and they're both ruling together that time. There'll be no need for a Son. Why? Because the Father and the Son are lighting up everything. It's going to be a time of perfection, and it's going to be amazing. So all of this leads to a kingdom mindset, but it's not just a triumph over, you know, Saddam Hussein or, or you know, the, the shirtless guy in Russia. It's not just those people. The idea is, is that spiritual forces are very much in play. When the Antichrist comes into power, that's not just a physical thing. It's a spiritually motivated thing. In fact, what you find is there's only two people listed in history who have ever been indwelt by Satan. Who is that? Judas, number one, in the past. Antichrist, the man of sin. The man of lawlessness in the future. Those are the only two. So all of this has got an incredible spiritual component to it, and we can't allow for our naturalistic world to make us filter that out. The Bible won't allow it. Okay, so what's going on here is incredible. So now whatever's been taken from them has been distributed. And watch what he says here. Here's a parenthetical section, verse 9. Now this expression, he ascended. What does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. Now, some people have taken this two ways. The first way that they've taken this is, well, what it was is he went down into the deepest, darkest places of hell and he preached to the spirits in prison. That happens in 1 Peter 3. That's not what it's talking about here, okay? That's a completely separate thing. You want to do some crazy devotions this week, that's where you want to go for that. But it seems like the ESV has got the better translation here, which is the idea that after it says, into the lower parts, comma, of the earth. In other words, he descended from heaven, his abode with the Father. He came here and lived life as a person, as you and I, but he is also ascended. Notice what it says next. It says, verse 10, he also descended, is him, he who also, sorry, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens. Why? So that he might fill all things. Now, this is a present continuing action. In other words, it kind of lights the fuse for this, but the fuse is still burning in order to accomplish this grand idea, this grand eternal plan that God has going on, what he seeks to accomplish through Christ. So, and real quick, I couldn't remember all this, so I just wrote it down. This is done by calling forth, one of the ways it's done, calling forth five word-centered offices of spiritual leadership with their work serving as the seeds embedded into the saints for the purpose of building up the body of Christ in unity, maturity, and love as the body serves Christ by serving one another. Now, you don't have to write that down, just read it later. But if I was trying to sum it all up in one way, one of the ways that all things are being filled is because God has given the local church a way to work. Have you ever given somebody a responsibility and just said, get to it? And then you wonder why things went wrong. Because we didn't take the time to go through and teach them how it needed to be done. If you don't sit down and teach your child how to tie their shoes, you'll end up with knots. Or you'll end up with scrapes, right? 
Our problem is, is we've cut the middleman and just got him the zips. Right? There's no training in that. Too often we've settled for the zip shoes for church. And we haven't taken the time to be taught what it is to tie a knot and then a double knot so they don't come loose. The church needs to take that time. And God has structured the church in such a way as to see that accomplished. In fact, the way that you lick your fingers and hold them to the wind to see how the church is doing, a proper way to judge a church is not how many people you have coming and how much money is given in the offering. That's what pastors say to other pastors. What you're running, what you're giving. Stop it. That's not anything to do with measuring spiritual growth. What measures spiritual growth is whether or not we're understanding how do I theologically tie my shoes so that I can run this present race well. That's how it comes down. One of the ways that Christ has done this is through the Spirit, He has blessed the church with five offices. Look what it says here. Verse 11, and we're going to camp out on this for for a couple of weeks here. Probably three weeks. You know that's a lie. Probably six. Here we go. Verse 11. And he gave. Now watch that real quick. Jesus, the victorious one, has given something to the church. He gave, he granted them, some as, number one, apostles. Okay? And some as, if you want to mark them, number two, prophets. And some as, number three, evangelists, and some as, number four, pastors, and number five, teachers. And they are five, they are not four. Now many people appeal to something that is called the Granville Sharp Rule in Greek. I'm sure all of you want to really know this right now, so please stay awake. They appeal to something to say anytime that you have this situation, this certain construction in Greek, the pastors and the teachers are put together in their one office. That's not true when you're dealing with plurals. The patterns that happen in Greek never include generic plurals. Now you're like, boy, my spiritual life is just exploding because of that. But if you wonder why I'm saying that there are five, and I'm going to emphatically say that there are five, is because that's where the grammar leads. So there are five of them. Apostles, prophets, don't look. Third one. Evangelists, good. Yeah! Teachers, good. I'm a little fond of the fourth one. Okay. So now we want to break down exactly what does this mean? How do we understand this? First off, and I know it sounds really weird and I don't want to be self-aggrandizing at all, but if you want to take this seriously, I'm actually a gift. See, my wife's known this for years. But now we're letting everybody in on the secret. That's not how we want to handle it at all. The first thing we want to deal with is not just apostles. We're going to focus on that next week. But the idea of apostles and prophets, because this is a very unusual structure. If anything, we would often think, well, shouldn't it be prophets and apostles? Now, I'll go ahead and tell you this. A few weeks ago, I actually told you something in error. And having studied more, I'm wrong in this. Prophets, I would equate to formally the Old Testament. Apostles, I would equate to the New Testament. Having studied more, I'm completely wrong on that. Completely wrong. Actually, what I find out is is that the prophets and the apostles are all New Testament deals. It's not just Old Testament, New Testament. Now, I want to show you why this whole situation is important. 
Anytime that you're sitting down to study the Bible, and if you were in hermeneutics class, you'll remember this. This might be familiar to you. I'll try to explain it as simply as possible. And you're dealing with a situation. You're saying, you know what? I wonder how significant that is in Scripture. First, you want to start with the verse you're dealing with and try to pull everything you can. And then you want to back up a little bit to the few sentences around it until you get to the paragraph, deal with the chapter, deal with the whole book. Everybody got the, got the idea of concentric circles? You want to grow in your understanding and grow in your survey of what you're dealing with at the same time. If you can find within the writings of Paul, because Paul's who's wrote Ephesians, Paul is the one who wrote Ephesians, if you can find within the writings of, the, of Paul this phrasing that's used here with apostles and prophets, you start to begin to put together a whole picture of what he's talking about. Now, what's interesting is, you don't have to turn there, but I do want you to write it down. And PJ, if we could go to this. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, if you want to write this down. By the way, if you need a booklet to take notes, we have this little can up here that's full of little booklets to take notes. But notice what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, because this is a place where he brings it up outside of Ephesians. And God has appointed in the church, first, notice he's giving a hierarchy here, first, apostles. Who are the top leadership positions in the church? Apostles. Number two, prophets. You say, we don't have any apostles or prophets on staff here. We don't. There's a reason why. We're going to show you. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then, miracles. Then, gifts of healing, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. So one of the instances outside of Ephesians where we see apostles and prophets put together is when Paul wants to go through and list a hierarchy of leadership importance, the channels that you go through, as far as what it is to lead the local church faithfully. Write that down. Keep it in the back of your mind. Think about it. And if you would, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Because if you can find a phrase mentioned within the same book, you can pretty much be guaranteed that the author of the book is going to be using that phrase consistently throughout unless context determines differently. If you'll remember back, we talked about how Gentiles who were far off have been brought near. Do you, does everybody remember that? And the cross is how we were brought near. The Jews had all of this revelation going on. They'd been given all of these oracles, the Old Testament prophets going on. They had the law. They had the promises of God. Gentiles didn't have this. They were actually alienated from this situation. We're going to talk about why that is at the end of this sermon, hopefully. We don't have Sunday school today, so probably. But through the cross, what happens is, is all of a sudden, we, who are not Jews, Gentiles, get brought to the forefront, and we're actually brought into a position of equal standing at the cross. The Jew, because of their previous revelation, is not any better than the Gentile who was ignorant and had nothing. We're actually brought on a level playing field, and we actually cease to be Jew and Gentile, and we actually lock arms, and we actually become brothers and sisters. We now have an inner relationship that needs to happen, and I will tell you this, that biblical language of brother and sister needs to happen more in our midst. Zach is not just our youth pastor, he's your brother. We need to start calling him that. We need to start thinking of him that. When you start thinking of Sue Hall as your sister in Christ, there's nothing wrong with saying that. That doesn't make you Baptist to say that. I've actually heard that. Well, you knew they were Baptists because they called everybody brother and sister. Now, sounds like they're a biblicist to me. Sounds like they just understand the Bible. Let's not be scared to call one another brother and sister. It's okay. It's a good thing. That's what God has made us in Christ. It's a good thing. 
But what I want to show us here in particular, and PJ, I know I got a lot up there, but I want to start in chapter 2, verse 19. Just to refresh, I don't want to belabor it, but I just want to refresh this real quick so we remember what happened. Because it brings up the phrase apostles and prophets. So Ephesians 2, look at verse 19. So then you, speaking of the Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you, Gentiles, are fellow citizens. Now keep that in mind, the idea of being fellow citizens, okay? With the saints and are of God's household. Now let's explain this real quick. It's estimated between 10 and 15, maybe even 20 years from Acts chapter 2 until Gentiles really came into the fold of the church. From Acts chapter 2 up until the beginning of Acts 10, it's all Jews. All Jews coming to faith in Christ and their Messiah. And then all of a sudden, Peter gets the call to go to Cornelius, and he begins preaching to them, and he sees the Holy Spirit come upon these people, and he's like, wow, who would have thought that these people could be saved? And then he turns around, his entire racist mindset is revolted of whatever he had before. Lord, I would never do that. That's unclean. It never touches my lips. And I love it because being kind that he is, don't ever call what I made unclean. It's all acceptable for you. And he's setting up his mind to recognize that these people that they had hated for generations are now going to be brought into a loving and equal standing with them in the body of Christ. It was completely revolutionary to their mindset. Sometimes we don't grasp it. But now he goes and he has to tell everybody, you went with Gentiles, you don't understand. Spirit came on them just like they did on us. Who was I to stand in God's way? I love that verse. Who was I to get in God's way of stopping him from doing what only God can do and bringing complete opposites and rebels together in harmonious peace in his son? Gosh, it's grace. So who was I to stop it? Now all of a sudden you have this explosion. But the problem that you have and the conflict that Paul begins Romans 9 with is a lot less Jews are coming to faith in Christ and a lot more Gentiles. What in the world has happened here? And you see that there's a shift that begins to take place. Well, that's kind of what this deal is right here. For the longest time, the saints in the church were Jewish. But now we've seen this massive switch and Gentiles have been invited into the fold. And now they're all one new man in Christ. So notice he says here, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Foundation. How important is a foundation? Kenny, how important is a foundation? What's that? You don't start right, you don't finish right. And you've poured plenty of foundations, yes? Have you ever poured one on the second floor? <laughs> no, because that's insane. You would never pour a foundation on the second floor. We'll deal with that more later. I just wanted to hear Kenny say it. That's good. When it talks about this idea that the foundation of how Jews and Gentiles came into an equal standing in this one new man, it's the apostles and the prophets. So this tells us what? We know the what from chapter 4. They're offices that have been gifted to the church by the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus wants His church done this way. They're in a hierarchy that happens. We saw that from 1 Corinthians 12 to where it's apostles and then prophets and then teachers to where this takes place. So He's got this all lined up for us. We see what's going on. They're a foundation. And notice here, you say, well, I thought Jesus was supposed to be the foundation. Notice what it says, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Now, we know what the cornerstone is. It's a pivotal stone that's placed 
within the wall where everything else is joined to. In fact, one interesting thing that I saw in the ancient Near East, they actually considered the cornerstone more important than the foundation. You can have a foundation all day long, but if you don't have any walls, you don't really have anything. You just got a platform. Jesus is serving as the thing that holds it all together. So what is it about the apostles and the prophets that is so foundational of which Jesus is taking the place as the cornerstone here? Let's finish this verse and we'll move right into three. Notice it says, In whom, that's Christ, the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, In whom, that's Christ, right, the cornerstone, you also being built together into a dwelling place in the Spirit. Now that's all good stuff. Because what it says is that God's doing a work. He's doing an active work. He's getting us all actively involved, and in His Son, and by His Spirit, He's constantly working on the church in order to bring us more and more and more together. God's goal for the church is unity. It's unity. Now, something that would mess us up often in Bible study is we see that big number three. Everybody see it? Everybody see it in your Bible? Chapter 3, verse 1. And our mind wants to do like a little click, and we moved on to something else. We haven't. Get rid of it. If you want to use a whiteout strip, white out over that three and just keep going with it, okay? For this reason. For what reason, Paul? Well, because in Christ, Jews and Gentiles have been given equal standing by His grace as one new man of which He's working through to bring unity and to build up a holy temple in which His Spirit dwells. Right? Wasn't that everything we just looked at? For this reason, I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And then everybody see that dash? Everybody see that? Go down to verse 14. It's not up there on the screen, so don't worry about it. Notice he says, for this reason. See that? Notice the language between verse 1 and verse 14 are the same. That's because everything from verse 2 to verse 13 is parenthetical. Now you think I get off on a tangent? Right here is a massive tangent, okay? But this tangent is essential. Verse 2. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Everybody see that word, stewardship. Don't be scared of it. It's the word oikonomia. And it's where we get the word dispensation. The idea is, is God's present dealing in history with people. And what he's choosing to use right now is not the nation of Israel because of their rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah. He is using the church. So this is the present stewardship of God's grace. He says, if indeed you've heard of the stewardship, the oikonomia, the administration, sometimes it's translated, of God's grace which was given to me for you. Remember, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he's got a mission here. He's going to explain what this is. That by revelation, not the book of Revelation, the fact that God has showed him stuff, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Quick definition of mystery when it's used in the Bible. Something that was previously concealed that is now being revealed. Okay? It's an easy way to remember it. Previously concealed, usually Old Testament, currently revealed. So in other words, here's what Paul's saying. Paul has a special calling by God's grace because he wants to show everybody something through Paul. And so Paul's going to unfold something for us to understand that was never thought of before wasn't even on the radar. Nobody could have planned for it. God had always had it sitting there waiting for the right time in order to execute his plan so that it would all roll forward just as he desired. Paul is the gracious vessel of which this mystery 
gets made known to us. So we all say, thank you, Holy Spirit, and thank you, Paul. Verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. In other words, when you read what I've written, you know that I know what I'm talking about, okay? Paul's not just spouting some stuff and he's on some kind of weird LSD trip. That's not what's happening here. The Spirit has taught him things, and now he wants to turn around and he wants to invest it in us for our betterment. Because you can give a kid shoes all day long, but if we don't understand what they are, why we need to tie them, we're going to get all messed up and tripped up. So here he goes, verse 5. Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. Now stop. Knowing that Paul is writing in the first century A.D., he's probably writing in the 50s A.D., and he says in other generations, just as looking at that, what do you think that might be that he's talking about time-wise? It's okay, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to throw anything. The Old Testament, yes, right? Previously in the Old Testament, we didn't know about this. God didn't show it to them, but he's showing it now. And because he's showing it now, we need to pay special careful attention to what he's doing because if he wasn't doing it previously and he has it for this point right now there's obviously a responsibility to it that needs to be upheld can we understand that we got that yes okay everybody follow with me he says here verse 5 which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has when now if you don't mark anything else today mark now Right now, at the writing of this book, now is when God wants to show it to you. He has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. There is our phrase. So we saw it in 2.20. We see it in 4.11. Now we see it in 3.5, and it's all within the same book. So there's a train of thought that's going on here. How has God revealed this brand new truth that he previously didn't want to let anybody know about? Well, he revealed it at the right time, and he used holy apostles and prophets in order to get the job done. Why is it that prophets doesn't respond to the Old Testament? Because Paul gives us a marker that now this is the work that he's doing right now, or we would say it this way. During the church dispensation, which we're still in, the stewardship of the church, The magnitude of the local church, what God wants to accomplish through the body of Christ on earth. Now is the time that these things have been revealed. So he says here, through the holy apostles and prophets, in the Spirit. Verse 6, to be specific, and that is an added, notice that it's in italics, but it's a good one. They want you to understand exactly what this is. What is the grand mystery that we don't previously know, but we need to understand now? Here's what it is. That the Gentiles... Our fellow heirs, that's the first thing. What does that mean? It means that those people that you used to think, sorry, not you, the Jews, used to think that were dogs. They used to have a common phrase, well, God just created them as walking firewood for the flames of hell. That's the only reason why they're alive. They hated them. Couldn't stand them. Guess what? They're going to inherit what you inherit because of Christ. That's how close they are. Can you imagine? Imagine this for a second. Somebody passes away. And you're there for the reading of the will and you have the lawyer come in and he's flipping open the briefcase and got the papers all out. And all of a sudden, somebody walks in, you're like, oh, I hate that guy. And he says, sounds like, yeah, he gets an equal share too. What would you do? Come here, brother, let's hug. Would you do that? No, but can you imagine how this sounded when they read it out loud? That these people who were far off 
who you wanted nothing to do with, who you just assume wait for a bus to come so you could push them out in front of it. Those people. Let's not pretend. They were very vicious about this whole situation. They were oppressed for years and they blamed Gentiles for this. They hated their guts. Guess what? They're inheriting the same stuff you're going to inherit. It's all in Christ. Number two, look at the next part here. And their fellow members. Everybody remember in verse 19 of chapter 2, we saw fellow citizens? Their fellow members of the body. You know what that means? It means, just as your members, and it is, isn't it interesting that we don't have like, by the way, I'm super white, okay? But, because I got 10, whatever, and I was like, wow, I'm white. Anyway, another story. How weird would it be if from your shoulder to your elbow, there's a different color? You're like, how'd I get red all of a sudden right here? And then from elbow on, you're, you're back to being you. Would that be weird? Yeah. Notice the picture that they're given here. Your fellow members of the body. In other words, even though they might fit here between this and this, you can't tell the difference because that's how equal their standing is with you. It's all one continuous appendage in Christ. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter a hill of beans. What matters is their location. And where are they? In Christ. Everybody see that? Big difference. So notice it says here next, and their fellow partakers. Now I wrote this one down and I can't even read it. Having a share in a possession or relationship. In other words, they get just the same piece of pie that you get. You don't get one bigger. They don't get crumbs. Everybody gets the same equal share. They've been brought into the one new man in such a way as to where it's harmonious without fault. This is the mystery. This is the thing that God kept secret for years. And is saying now is the time to unfold that access to God's grace is now available to every person in the cross of Christ. It is a grand aisle that is inviting people to come be a partaker of His grace. That's the mystery. It's not just a select group of people. It's not just good for you, but eh, you don't qualify here. It's none of that. Everybody is equally accepted at the cross, and when you come to the cross, everybody is equally accepted in the body. We may have something different that we're doing in the body, but we're never disjointed from the body. It's all together. Now you might say, I'm not impressed. Impress me. Fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, because hearing the word is how people get saved, yes, we understand that. So when you respond in faith, you're automatically brought into this situation. Those three things are yours unconditionally because of what Christ has done. Now watch this. Which I was made a minister, that word can also be translated servant, according to the gift of God's grace. So God graced him to do this and was given to me according to the working of his power. So it's only by God's power that Paul is able to tell everybody this. And that's why he's the apostle to the Gentiles. And watch this. To me... The very least of all the saints, notice he calls himself a saint. Notice he didn't have to be dead 2,000 years before some council made him a saint. He's a saint. This grace was given, number one, to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. You know what the unfathomable riches of Christ are called? Grace. That's what it's called. He was, number one, commissioned to preach grace that Christ has made available. Number two, verse nine, and to bring to light what is the administration, same word as before for stewardship up there, oikonomia, stewardship, of the mystery which for ages, 
has been hidden in God, previously speaking, right? Who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now, everybody see the word now? Might now be made known through the who? Stop. Hold on. What in the world just happened? Right now, God is displaying his manifold wisdom through you and me. Would anybody conclude that God is smarter than a fifth grader by looking at us? That word manifold there is the idea of a florist taking an arrangement of flowers and making it so spectacular you can't take your eyes off of it. The manifold wisdom of God is being manifested through the church. Here's the, here's the, here's the, the cinching part. You ready? Now this is what he's doing. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Who's our audience? To the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. There's something about what Jesus has done in you and I as a unified whole where we are such objects and demonstrations of His grace that it is preaching about God's manifold wisdom to spiritually dark forces. Why in the world would that be a situation? I'm going to touch on a subject that we touched on probably over a year ago. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. Because God's plan was not just limited to this present age. There's a reason why it is what it is. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Now here's what's interesting about Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is a song. God said, Moses, I want you to write a song. It's okay, God? Now, if you're familiar with Deuteronomy, if you sat through the Sunday school class we did for three years, we covered the whole book. You constantly see, keep my statutes and commandments, keep my statutes and commandments, right? Gives them all of these laws for living, all these rules for how to go about stewarding. Uh, everything that they've got going on so that they do it well into the glory of God. Keep my, keep my laws and commandments. And then around 28, here's going to be the good things that happen to you if you keep my laws and commandments. I'm going to bless you unbelievably. Every part of everything you touch is just going to be exploding. And then the rest of that happens for like 14 verses. And then for like 50 verses, there's, and here's all the bad things that are going to happen if you don't keep my statutes and commandments. Now, that's crazy. But then we get into a situation where God tells Moses, Moses, yeah, God, these people are not going to keep these statutes and commandments. <laughs> and it's incredibly depressing to think that from a ministerial point of view. They're going to fail huge. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to write a song. I want you to teach them this song. I want them to be able to recite it and sing it at any time so that when they don't keep my statutes and commandments and they find themselves in another land worshiping some false god, doing some weird stuff, eventually getting to the point where they're sacrificing their own children. Their famine is so bad, they're eating their young. I mean, we're talking messed up stuff that ends up happening in Israel's history, all because they wouldn't follow what God asked of them. I want them to be able to recite this song as a testimony against them. Now, there's a lot in this song. You can read it on your own to see how that works in the grand scheme. That was a very short little history. But I want you to look at verse 7. Remember the days of old. Okay, so think about where you're at. Second generation of the Exodus, right? 
first generation had died in the wilderness. They're getting ready to cross over to the promised land. Moses has not died yet, so we know they haven't crossed the Jordan River to go over. He's giving them this song. Remember the days of old. So we know that whatever it's talking about, it's talking about before the moment when they cross over to have conquest in the land. Joshua's not in charge yet, okay? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Think about history past, okay? Ask your father, and he will inform you. Your elders, and they will tell you. In other words, this is something that's an oral tradition that is constantly communicated in your community. It's something that you guys know about all the time. So he's going to take their minds in this song to something that they all know about. Now watch what he says, verse 8. When the Most High, now you guys are going to interpret. Who's the Most High? God is. When the Most High, and why would he call him Most High? Most High compared to what? The what? Any other gods? The little g gods. The fallen demons, the deities, the rulers, authorities, principalities, powers, thrones. All those people. All those people that celestially and invisibly messed it up, right? Think about this. The Most High, here's what it says, gave the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of man. Stop. What event in history past was there a separation of the nations and they were each given an inheritance or an allotment? Does anybody remember? Babel. We all know this. At the Tower of Babel, they were linguistically divided. Why? Because they tried to build a tower into the heavens and be their own gods and not be fruitful, multiply, and spread out and fill up the earth like they were commanded to do. So this was a monument mark of major rebellion against God. Okay? Everybody remember this, this moment. He's referring back to this in their song to bring something to their mind. Now watch this. He says here, uh, let's see, verse 8, Most High gave the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of man. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the, now watch this, sons of Israel. If you have something different than sons of Israel in your translation, raise your hand. Raise them high so we can see it. Do you have something that says like sons of God? Some of them have sons of God. What happened here? An interesting thing is, is that the 95 translation of the New American Standard has not taken some part of the findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls into account for what they see. And so this rendering of the sons of Israel is derived from what's called the Masoretic Text. And the dating we have for that is about 900 A.D. So they're copies of copies of copies that we have from 900 A.D. When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1950s, maybe it was the late 1940s, research it sometime, it's incredibly interesting. They found copies of Old Testament stuff that dated way before this time. And so they're setting out works that they had from the 9th century A.D. next to the 2nd century B.C., and they're going, oh my gosh, there's no mistakes here. God's Word has been preserved for 1,100 years. This is incredible. But every once in a while, they would have a little marking of something different. And this is one of those instances where probably sons of God is the better rendering. In fact, if you have an English standard version, if you have a revised standard version, if you have the Jerusalem Bible, you're going to find that those are rendered sons of God. If you have a good news Bible at home, if you were to look at that, it would say, he assigned to each nation a heavenly being. That's how they translate it. Also the next one, according to the number of the heavenly court, that's the New Living Translation, which is interesting. That's more of a paraphrase. And there it is. The New Living Translation even has 
the idea of a heavenly realm that's involved. What is this going back to? Principalities and powers and rulers. Here's what God is saying. When it came down to Babel, did anybody think it's weird that for the first 11 chapters of Genesis, God's working with everybody, and then chapter 12, he shrinks back and works with one guy? Why does that happen? Because Babel was such a major revolt against God and his leadership. We're going to do what we want to do, and we don't care what you have to say about it. And God said, cool, do that. Let me take a step back and let's see how that goes for you. Before Genesis chapter 12, everybody was Gentiles. Keep that in mind. And so when that happened, and God divided them up, he took a celestial being, and he put them his head over all the nations. How do we know that? Daniel chapter 10, the angel had to contend with the prince of Persia. That's not a human guy. That's a fallen angel that's governing over Persia that he has to deal with. And he has to go back and have a dispute with the one who's over Greece. Who's that? That's a celestial being. That's a ruler, authority, principality, power, throne. It's these rankings of spirits who are not stewarding their nations well. And so what happens here when he divides it up at Babel, he lets the Gentiles do what the Gentiles do. And he says, you know what? I'm going to take an inheritance for myself. It can't be the sons of Israel. Why? Because in Babel, the sons of Israel didn't even exist. However, right before Babel, that's why you have Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations. And there are 70 nations. Why? Because there are 70 nations that were divided up with 70 celestial beings, one over each nation, responsible to rule and govern. Makes you wonder who's over America. Think about it, guys. So notice what it says in finishing this out. He set the boundaries of the people according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, being Israel, is the allotment of his inheritance. You say, okay, why does this matter in everything that we've talked about? Just think about what Jesus is doing in the cross. In the cross, in the church, this one new man, those who were far off, he is using the foundation of the apostles and prophets to bring them near. Why? Because the church is the entity by which God uses to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? Go and make disciples. Why? Because this is God reclaiming those Gentile nations for himself as his possession. That's why sharing the gospel is so important. The apostles and the prophets were used to lay this foundation that we have in the New Testament so that we have a completed New Testament. We understand the story and we understand where it's going. And it's our responsibility to share this message. Why? Because God wants those people from China. And God wants those people from Czechoslovakia and from Australia. And yes, Madison. He wants those people. God wants them all. That's why he made sure that his son died for all. So that the only thing that would keep people who had previously been estranged from him because of the rebellion is going to be their own unbelief. Not because God didn't set up everything to make them acceptable in his sight. He did it all. This was the moment where they were cast away to do what they wanted to do and it was a sign of judgment against them. The cross is the moment of which he draws them near and he brings them back in and he says, come to me. Come to me. Drink of the water of life freely. That's how Revelation ends. That's what he's doing in the cross. That's why the spiritual forces are being made a public embarrassment. Because you couldn't steward these nations well, 
Watch what the Most High can do through Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus and that he is triumphant over all these incredible things that maybe we've never even considered before. And how the church has a responsibility with this mission to share the good news of the death and the resurrection of Christ. Forgiveness of sins, yes. Debt canceled completely. It is all finished because of Jesus' work. And we thank you, God, that your heart is for people. You love people. Jesus died for people. Father, give us opportunities to share the gospel. Provoke our hearts by your Spirit because of the Word to see what you're doing on an invisible plane because you are taking back what is rightfully yours that the time of divine discipline is over and the time of grace is flowing freely. What a wonderful, complete, and free message we have to share. Father, give us hearts to do so boldly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.